painting became the biggest separation of myself as a black person from other black people because I wasn't painting figures okay. at the time that blackness was very important. You're talking about black power, black civil rights, power. nationalism. You get involved in doing something that you go beyond definition. It just gets good. Right. And it becomes your personal thing. But what it was was abstract art, and black people weren't supposed to make abstract art. Right. But to prove it, you begin to concentrate on an artist who did, who happened to have been black, and that was Norman Lewis. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. That was Sam Gilliam. The artist is showing at this year's Venice Biennale. It's his second appearance, some 45 years after he represented the United States at the Biennale in 1972. He's being interviewed by Jonathan Binstock, the director of Rochester's Memorial Art Gallery, who's also an expert on Gilliam's work. The interview was produced by and originally broadcast on SiriusXM. This hour-long interview covers a wide range of material, so we're just going to let you get right into it. SiriusXM Urban View presents Drake, a one-of-a-kind, in-depth conversation with African-American artist Sam Gilliam. My name is Jonathan Binstock. I'm the Mary W. and Donald R. Clark Director of the Memorial Art Gallery and Art Museum in Rochester, New York. It's part of the University of Rochester. And I'm here with American painter Sam Gilliam. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Sam. I've known Sam since 1994. I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan uh, writing a PhD dissertation in art history. Just to give you a bit of background on how I came to know Sam, essentially he became the subject of my dissertation and I've been really researching and studying his art ever since then. This is an opportunity to really reflect on six decades probably of artistic activity on the part of Sam Gilliam and on the future where he's headed, not only in terms of his own career, but his legacy and what he will leave us here with his extraordinary contributions to the world of art. His work since the 60s has been acquired by major museums all over the United States, also internationally. One can find a major painting by Sam in almost any important art museum in this country. Sam will be featured prominently in the Venice Biennale once again this coming summer, summer of 2017 in Venice, Italy. So. That is the backstory to his accomplishment without getting into the specifics yet, but let's tell some stories. My understanding is that you were always making art. Yeah. Are there any people you remember being especially encouraging? Well, too, I, I think uh, in Mississippi, you start with the comics or in the paper, there's uh, the Minneapolis Art Institute had a gimmick called Draw Me. And if you drew this picture, you'd be sold an art lesson. That's what actually happened. But other than that, is it uh, copied Dick Tracy? Uh, anything was in the newspaper so that your first ambition was to be a cartoonist. Mm -hmm. Normally is that uh, there isn't an art school, but at least in elementary school, if you finish reading or assignment, you could draw. And your parent always supplied you with two books, one 
to do your homework in and the other to draw in. Or you had a club, a group of friends. I think we remember now, uh, even as adults in Sidia, we call that belly art, where that you lie on your stomach, lick your lips, and draw and draw and draw, and you're out of space. Slash Garton, Buck Rogers, and mm-hmm. Hop Harrigan, Steve Kenyon. You just grow. Mm-hmm. And you create characters like the Black Bee. And one of the great things about Louisville is that it was where Marvel Comics was printed, so that you had lots of comic books and things like this. Was Bob Thompson yeah. in your class, or did you study with him? Bob Thompson, uh, for our listeners, was... Uh, a really terrific painter, an African-American painter, went on to do great things. He didn't live very long, but uh, had a wonderful retrospective at the Whitney a number of years ago. Bob was younger than I, as a Louisvillian. He left and went to uh, Provincetown, and his work was picked up by Chris Chrysler at the Norfolk Museum in Virginia, and he became very popular, and they started to write about him. As a result, this was just that inspiration, that plus music. Louisville was a great place for jazz and for music. You're in the midst of energy. And of course, is that marching in the ROTC, later becoming a member of the NAACP, picketing and all things like this, is that you were very, very whirly when you... Uh, <laughs> Did your parents encourage your interest in art? Did your brothers and sisters encourage your interest in art? Did anybody discourage your interest in art? Well... There were always older people around who looked at kids and decided what kids were going to do even when they were five years old. And since I was always lying down on the floor with a pencil drawing, licking my lips, drawing a picture, someone told my mother, keep that kid with lots of paper and things like this, and he's going to be a great one. And of course, to prove that I could draw, people would give me subjects, and by nightfall, I'd have exactly what you wanted. And... My favorite subject was horses. And in the first grade, I drew lots of horses, even the milkman's horses, and I what he did when he got in front of our house. And that got me my first spanking in school. But it also got my first skip into the third grade. They figured they put me into uh, higher grades in order to maintain my energy. So you... You stayed in Louisville for quite a while. You you went to college at the University of Louisville and then master's in fine arts at the same university? Yeah. In those days, no one was encouraged to become an artist because you would starve. Right. It's like someone would say, don't become a musician because you'd starve. You knew that at one day, as opposed to being married, if I want to be an artist, I'm going to have to escape. Mm -hmm. It's like with the three little pigs, you go to see the world. And my ambition was to go to Europe because through art history and college and things like this, I knew about France. Everybody in France must be an artist, Germany, and Europe and all of the movements, Impressionism, etc. And one of the most interesting things is that uh, as a scholarship student in college, I showed the slides to the art history programs, all from the beginning I'd show freshman art history slides, completely through graduate school, the Baroque. And I became just as interested in art history and other things as I was actually in painting. This is Draped, a conversation with artist Sam Gilliam on Sirius XM Urban View.
So we're in Louisville. You haven't moved to Washington yet. No. What artists are you fascinated most with? The first artist that I really love was Telejev. The Russian artist, the Museum of Modern Art, who painted the painting, Hide and Go Seek. It was on a calendar in, in the sixth grade that I saw. The interesting thing was this painting of a tree at which it, there were heads and faces all over. Yeah. And that was so intriguing is that you learn to do things like that, is to draw a picture and to hide things in it. Mm -hmm. And that kind of manipulative uh, adventure yeah, yeah. just continues to go. There were a lot of artists, I think, that uh, they were just expatriates. And it was the beginning, I guess, of surrealism, but it was actually the Russian version. Right. Because um, Ben Sean, everybody, I mean, you actually had a cacophony of, of artists that you knew about. And in 1962, you would move to Washington, D.C. If I remember correctly, your wife at the time, Dorothy, got a job as a reporter. Right. She was one of the first black reporters hired for the Washington Post. We moved in the vicinity of Columbia Road, um, which was off 16th and Columbia Road, the four churches, the Unitarian Church. Right. Baptist Church. Adams Morgan, pretty much, right? Adams Morgan, but one of the most active and beautiful sections of Washington, near Rock Creek Park, the zoo. So we moved in with no furniture, and I had my first studio. Right, <laughs> which is where you lived. <laughs> Let me say a few words about uh, Washington, D.C. in 1962. Washington, D.C. was a very exciting place for artists at that time. You had a group of painters called the Washington Color School. I mean, so-called Washington Color School. There's lots of arguments. Different people call them different things. Some people say it didn't exist at all, but let's say they existed. Morris Lewis, Kenneth Nolan, Tom Downing, Gene Davis, um, Howard Maring. Paul Reed. Paul Reed. There was a lot of activity. These artists made these large, monochromatic, color field paintings, and a couple of them in particular, Lewis and Nolan, were becoming known in New York a very influential critic named Clement Greenberg, uh, and even his acolyte, Michael Freed, who were widely read, were talking about these artists and helping to develop their reputation beyond Washington in, in the center of the art world at that time in New York City. And you enter into this situation. You're, you're a young man. You're fresh out of grad school. What was it like? Well, better than that is it was uh, post-World War II, and most of the teachers were from Europe. In fact, my teacher was German who had been sent out of Europe to avoid the Nazis, and he grew up in America. Ulfurt Wilkie? Wilkie, yeah. who was very important because he collected African sculpture. He taught graduate programs for, for students who came from the South, from Gremlin, or from uh, Tuskegee, or from uh, Fisk, which was very important because you also knew about the tradition of Aaron Douglas, are various things. And the most exciting thing is that Wilkie was an exhibiting painter. Uh, he traveled to Europe, to Japan. And I worked for him from my sophomore year through my uh, senior year. I was his studio assistant. I also helped him move sculpture. I borrowed books from him and things like this. And I saw art, art in the studio. And I learned how to go beyond mud. But one of the greatest things was that Muhammad Ali Saleh was a painter. He uh, painted murals in churches and in bars. So very early in life, I saw oil painting on walls 
mural painting and things like this. And even in high school where there was no art department, there was drafting. And there were architectural stores where they sold art books and the library and things like this. So that by the time I got to the university, was among the second class of black students, is that I was ready. There was a thinker outside our library that was built like uh, Monticello, like the University of Virginia Library. There was jazz concerts, music, and things like this. And then there was Bob Thompson. Bob was not only a great young artist, Bob was a party guy. Yeah. And did we celebrate. Yeah. The biggest thing was that in New York, of course, was happenings. And it's, it's like taking to the street or being spontaneous around jazz and art. And with the army, is that in traveling in Japan, is that there was a group called the Gutai. Right. Uh, who were the Japanese version of abstract expressionists. And there were lots of theater kabuki, the department stores and galleries in New York. Could you come into contact with the Gutai artists or see their work in Japan? I read about them and fundamentally learned much more once I got back, particularly in Washington. One of the real things was that um, Black Mountain College was where the Albers and many of the European artists in South Carolina. Fundamentally, many artists studied there, and this is Kenneth Nola. Did he study at Black Mountain? He studied at Black Mountain and was really probably the catalyst for a younger generation, perhaps a second generation, of artists in Washington because it was an American university mm. with Bob Gates and the founder of the Jefferson Place. You're listening to Draped, a conversation with Jonathan Benstock, an abstract artist and painter, Sam Gilliam. Uh, we're talking about, still, early memories. Uh, Kenneth Noland brought from Black Mountain College, which was this very liberal, experimental uh, college in, is it South Carolina? Yes. Uh, where Albers taught and many other influential artists. He brought some of those lessons to Washington. And, and do you think that he, was he a progenitor of the Washington Color School, or did it really happen between him and Lewis? Well, it happened between he and New York with Helen Frankenthaler. Okay. Uh, Motherwell and Helen Frankenthaler had been introduced to Greenberg. In fact, actually what you did is that you went to lectures or you sat at the feet of persons who had been someplace and had an experience and you listened to them. And many of the authors who wrote about Kennedy, who wrote about abstract expressionism, which are surrealism, or any of the movements that had uh, come from Europe and was being expressed, mm -hmm. Salvador Dali surrealism, mm -hmm. these uh, items became transferred to Washington, mm -hmm. essentially because of Mrs. Roosevelt and her interest in the black community is that a gallery was formed at Howard University called the Barnett Aiden and was really one of the only galleries in Washington where Norman Lewis, the artist, Harris um, Ferreira, Henry Tanner, mm -hmm. Roma Burton, all sorts of artists, even James Weeks of the California School. Right. Plus with American University, which had a very strong art department and a gallery at the Jefferson Place, you had an environment 
Nolan taught at Catholic University, Lewis taught at Howard, and in most black colleges, there were white teachers. You were admiring of these artists, I'm sure, Lewis and Nolan. Were you intimidated? Were you competitive? What did it feel like to be the new guy in town and the young man on the totem pole? I was eager. It was a time of coffee houses and folk music and jazz. And I had promoted a jazz concerts we bought. The Martin Jazz Quartet brought Marilyn Anderson really? down to support civil rights activities and fraternities. Even in Louisville, as it, I met the Bonds, relatives of Julian Bond, and it, the name Bond was a part of anything aesthetic, president of a college. There were Bonds in every city that you went to for architects and things like this. And that we formed clubs. I remember in colleges that a teacher would say, What's wrong is that you don't discuss. What's wrong is that you don't write. You don't make poetry. You don't make plays and things like this. So we did these things. And, of course, is that formed our groups and uh, formed galleries. So when you came to Washington, there was a choice. There was a Willem de Kooning show in Washington, D.C. Were you here? What was was the Washington Gallery of Modern Art. This was an art museum. Yes. A contemporary art museum, which no longer exists. In a house. In a house. In DuPont Circle. And had been formed by persons who were interested in Jasper Johns and Rauschenberg. Pop art. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, in 63, there was a festival called the Now Festival that was actually about happening right. to Rauschenberg and persons like this. Happenings are events, right? They're just these moments of artistic expression that come and go. Yeah. In fact, Washington was so wild about going to New York and going uptown. It was before the galleries moved to the village or down to Canal Street. This is where you spent your weekends. You would travel to New York. Yeah. When one, when one began to exhibit figures and got bad reviews. What was ascending was the Washington Color School. It was this real excitement of four, five, six young artists who were showing around the corner and were getting great reviews while you were getting bad reviews or bad figures over Columbia Road. So you changed styles. I mean, the idea was to become successful. And we met these guys. We all went to a club called Benbo's to play darts, and uh, we talk art. These guys were poor. It never sold a painting. One guy sold a painting to the Phillips, and he was ready to set up the bar, and someone says, no, you better take that money home <laughs> because, because you haven't paid rent for a year. I mean, it, it was a town of connection. This is Draped, a conversation with artist Sam Gilliam on SiriusXM Urban View. And now, more with Sam as he reflects back on his early days in Washington, D.C. The riots produced an escape from neighborhoods into Los Angeles. And Walter Hobbs, who opened the Ferris and was curator of the Pasadena Museum, lost his job at the Pasadena and moved to Washington. The idea of the riots, the beat generation, hippies, just an area of like Impressionism or any Cubism was formed. This sort of cauldrons were, were being formed in America. And Walter came to Washington with an idea of moving from the small gallery to become director of the Corcoran. And the Corcoran 
was mostly a, a domestic museum. Most of the people who showed at the Corcoran were little old ladies from Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody was interested in California Figure School or Krupke or Marcel Duchamp. I mean, school subjects. Uh, David Smith was from Washington and things like this. But the only place you had to go was Benbow's until suddenly something happened and Walter became director of the Corcoran by selling the art collection of one museum and then decided that one of the things that Washington needed was studios. So he gave five grants and I was the one who got a grant in painting, $5,000, mm -hmm. and I quit school. Quit teaching. Yeah, quit teaching. And around the table, I was ready to go, except my wife said, you have three kids, you need a house. And the whole, at that time, is that one said, if you're an artist, you're going to starve your family. And my wife had heard it, and she said, don't starve us. <laughs> but it, it was a beautiful time, because see, the, the idea that you're in association with artists who are really trying, showing in New York, and they were teaching school, mm -hmm. teaching college or teaching high school. You were teaching high school, and you had a grant. Sudden the National Endowment, and that as everyone began to grow, even though Nolan had taught at Catholic University, was quite advanced, had moved to New York, everyone began to arrive at the same time. There were generations of, we were called the third generation, but the third generation was just as far ahead as the first generation, because everyone was building. It was a concept that most of the galleries were part of apartment buildings uptown around until they moved to 57th Street. Then they start to move. They're always a part of the village or Washington Park. And the same thing happened in Washington. The idea of moving from DuPont Circle to the Corcoran and having a bigger space and also alternative spaces to the National Endowment. There was no disassociation from the art world you were a part of the art world. You were just as poor, just as unsuccessful, just as ambitious as an older person. In fact, Walter, who from Pasadena, cataloged everybody. He realizes that that uh, a guy was 70 years old, had never had a show, was the same as a guy that was 18 and just starting. Mm. So you're all on an even footing. I'm now 83. I mean, I'm capable of writing my own story. You're listening to Draped, a conversation with Jonathan Benstock, an abstract artist and painter, Sam Gilliam. The most recent renaissance, because you've had more than one, but the one we're enjoying right now uh, came out of an exhibition in Los Angeles at the David Kordansky Gallery, where the artist Rashid Johnson, who's a really exciting artist on the scene today, based in Chicago and uh, internationally known, very influential exciting talent, curated a show of the paintings you made in Washington, D.C. in 1964, 65, 66, Washington Color School style paintings. And they looked great at that exhibition. And they launched this moment, right? And my question is, why didn't we include those paintings in your retrospective at the Corcoran Gallery of Art in 2005? Because everyone considered that there was something much more exciting it was a time where, as opposed to leaning on someone, 
the idea of becoming an artist became consumptive. I mean, it had to come from me. Mm. There was a concentration on Stokely Carmichael being more important or the Black Panthers being more important or equally important as Martin Luther King, who was sort of telling you to behave, and the Panthers and Stokely telling you black nationalism. Misbehave. Yeah. Be, be a badass. Yeah. So in 67, you had a show at the Phillips Collection, and these were flat paintings. Mm. Some of them were beveled edge, right? Yeah. Um, and beveled edge, by the way, is a an angled stretcher, essentially a 45-degree angled stretcher at the edge of a painting. So instead of the canvas being wrapped around a stretcher that makes a flat surface, the well, the beveled edger creates a slab-like... The, the, the idea that with John Kennedy and the idea of the space age, mm-hmm. one thing that you were doing were concentrating with space. And with sculptors, you're beginning to discover both what we call tactile and visual space. And then it became, wow, everyone had said that space was two-dimensional or three-dimensional. You suddenly realize space is prismatic. Space is spherical. You know, it's it's not the earth. It's out there where John Glenn is. Also, the building of the Los Angeles County Museum or the Pasadena Museum or Ferris Gallery under Walter Hobbs. Just minor things like when Walter said, we're going to remove the big elevators from the Corcoran and we're going to change the Victorian into something that is modern and we have these big spaces. And you can work in those spaces. And just suddenly the association is that I knew Cat's Cradle, origami. So it was just a matter of transferring this to a large space. So in 2005, we decided not to include those Washington Color School paintings and as you said, we decided to begin with a moment that was entirely your own. And what we're referring to here are the draped paintings, the beveled edge paintings, these signature works that Sam made in 67, at least through 73, and, and still returns to the format. But what's different about the world today where your latest renaissance can be driven by a style of painting that you consider, I mean, did you say not entirely your own? Yeah. But it was in the air. It's something that you learn this in the army, or it's like fencing. There are two things you do. You advance or you retreat. And that theoretically is that retreating becomes so very important because it takes you back to the very beginning of life. And you realize that there's nothing out there that you want to be and do that you can't make it in the way you do it is the way that Lee Morgan does it, or Miles Davis. Sometimes you play notes, and sometimes you breathe. You develop a philosophy for becoming alive. And of course, is that with grants, and with the National Endowment, and what you call the studio, as uh, Walter said, we went into an alley, an old carriage house, three stories, two partners, and did social work. As actually became a part of a neighborhood, became a part of a gang, you became tough enough to keep the bad kids who would bring into your studio or things like this to settle them down and to become your own man. At the same time, you had that chance to grow. Walter's idea was any artist 
on any day can go into a room and change the world. So we're talking about Walter Hopps. He was the director of the Washington Gallery of Modern Art until he sold the collection to Oklahoma. He then became the director of the Corcoran. He moves on to the Smithsonian American Art Museum. From there, he becomes the founding director of the Manil Collection in Houston. He's really a legendary figure who was very important to you and your development as a young artist in Washington, D.C. in the 60s. And he had one process. He was good at discovering you and he was good at leaving you alone. And you never knew that he had left you alone and he was working with someone else. And what it was is that he gave you a sense of self-discovery. And that was the show of 1969. This is Draped, a conversation with contemporary art curator Jonathan Benstock and African-American painter Sam Gilliam. Let's just zero in for a moment on this development of the draped canvas, which for our listeners is a painting that has no stretcher at all. Mm -hmm. It's a painting that hangs like drapery or bunting. The canvas is allowed to flow and hang in space. You know, I guess you could think of a Roman toga if you want, but these paintings, they may be small-ish. They may be, when installed, 60 inches square. If they're a clover-shaped drape painting, flower-like form that is installed puffy on the wall, if you will, or they can be massive. 75 feet of canvas that gets draped throughout a space to create an environment, uh, an immersive context for painting. You walk into the gallery as the viewer, and you're surrounded by beautiful, ebullient, flowing color. How did you get there? What caused you to figure out that you don't need a stretcher to make a painting? Well, there's one question that everyone was asking. What's next? And and how do you how do you do what's next? And that was a question that Walter asked. He said, we're going to give you three guys the entire upper floor of the Corcoran, which consisted of more than nine galleries, 30 by 60 feet, some 20 to 30 feet high, and the atrium, which would be 60 feet from the floor of the, of the first story. He said, do something different. <laughs> right. And everyone has something in mind, and I was totally empty until one day standing at a window. I was in between going to the hardware to build a shower on the, on the third floor of the house that I was remodeling. And it occurred to me that the band that held the shower curtains was like an armature, like a stretcher, and that the curtains itself was freeform, was like the same idea of actually taking wood and wrapping canvas around it and painting, that this being the same was my idea. So when we had a meeting, and Walter asked, queried each of us, which, what we were going to do. Rockney Krebs, who was one of the artists, was going to use prisms and lasers. Ed McGowan was going to work with plastic, plaster, shower curtains, plaster that he farmed, etc. And he asked me what was I going to do, and I said, I'm going to make a fan. I'm going to go to Cat's Cradle, which was the most important game of my middle sister, you know, beautiful hands and strings and things like this. And just that space, and everybody was saying that, well, why do you need the stretcher? Just tack the painting to the wall. But 
why not just start with the sawhorse? Or why not just start with the plank? Or like Pollock, why not just start with the floor? And then Tom said, this is Tom Downing. Painter. Go to New York and look at Mars Lewis. A lot has been written about the draped paintings. It's, it's an iconic moment in your career. What hasn't been said about them? What hasn't been written? That now they're like a lab. They're like a, say, a river that you have to get into. But it's like a point of discovery, just like the period at the end of a sentence, or one sentence, that stops one and goes to the other. It's about rotation, and the drapes have become a way of going backwards, not literally forward, whether it's become the way of being what you would say, the theory of everything, of finding out what everything is actually about by borrowing, whether it's from Carl Sandburg or it's from James Joyce, or it's from Neruda, whom I'm crazy about, but most of all from Pollock. And then you discover the writing as writers were writing. They weren't necessarily just writing. They were making things up. They were guessing. So you learn how to guess. So when you say the drape paintings are going back just as they're going forward, are you referring to this idea of going back to sort of scratch, like getting rid of a history? Not getting rid of history, but getting to the beginning, like minimalism, which was the most important style that followed abstract expressionism, color field painting, then minimalism, which is always minimalism, small, ABC art. Mm-hmm. And then it was a matter of finding something that you loved very, very much, something that was large-scale, something that was wall-sized, making it like in the air. I mean, no matter how you were supposed to work, is it somehow is that in absence, just trying to build a shower curtain, you said, Eureka, this is my origami, this is my cat's cradle, these are the drape paintings. And, of course, is that where I landed was back in the Baroque, in Washington, the National Gallery, Canaletto, Ghiberti, Michelangelo, anybody that had ever done anything that had a curtain in it. People can't see me smiling. I'm telling you, this is one of those great moments of Cognitive Sam. It just became subject. I remember that there are only two things that I was interested in doing painting in the hour of the night and waiting till a painting to dry to start again to make the other thing. And my partner, who had had a show in New York, said, hey, Sam, why don't you come with me and let's make Brian famous? There we were. He did the show of transparency with glass of nothing, and I was going to do a 30-foot painting. Right. And what our experiences were is that Byron couldn't sell what he did. And Byron cut out the lights on me and put me out of the gallery. And I had to start all over again. This is Draped, a conversation with contemporary art curator Jonathan Benstock and African-American painter Sam Gilliam as he reflects back on his early career. I want to shift gears a little bit. Is there a difference between black art and art made by black people? It's neither... Art by black people, nor black art. There's only art. 
And when you come to a reduction that it's only art, then you're free to think about everything. And it's that elimination of not being necessarily making art sociological, not to make art anthropological, not political, only make art. And you begin to realize is that there are artists who make art out of magic. There are art that make art out of philosophy, theosophy. There are art that's called great salt works. And suddenly you realize is that you're in a generation where that art is reduced to what is called minimalism, or ABC. And that fundamental gives you a way of thinking about anything and everything in any way that you want to, and to think about others, or to be much more analytical. And the most important thing was beginning to be the riots in, in Watts, the riots in Washington, the march on Washington, the Vietnam war demonstrations, stopping the war, feminism, and all things that became generational to you, B.B. King, and certainly Arnett Coleman, who took music, or the Isler Brothers, who literally destroyed music, made musicians mad because they were so unmusical. And you realize that you were in a period of where that you were being unlike an artist but being a part of the world and everything, becoming universal, as one said, becoming like the first man did. And, that, and someone said that. Barnett Newman said that art is the beginning. His art was that who's afraid, you know, of that beginning. I think that the greatest inspiration was Indian culture. I remember Alan Chill's idea was wearing this big hat with a feather in it, and he said that he wanted art to be in the center. He went in the center of the room and he made art. And I wanted art to be on the wall, on the floor, or in prismatic space, or where I could go anywhere. I was only a cadet in the ROTC. I never flew. I wanted to be in the air. As you learn, the people around you learn. As you see the world in new ways, the people around you see the world in new ways. I taught. I taught art in elementary school from the sixth grade. And I advanced, as my students did. I taught art in, in high school for five years. And then I became a good college teacher. I became a good visiting artist, which meant I went from school to school. And then suddenly, in 1970, I started to show in Europe, right. in France. Galleria d'Arthea Spire. And began to show with the Malraux theory of art isn't necessarily an enclosure, but, you know, outside, it's everywhere. Or with Robert Smithson, art is geological, or there's more than one museum, natural museums and things like this. I began to visit, began to travel. I mean, the idea of a car or convertible and to ride on highways and to be, you know, either lost or going someplace with a map is that it became the same attitude that was in the studio. One interesting thing was that I found other artists, Christo, Duchamp again. But one important thing was once I got started with the drape paintings, a person asked me, would you come to Greenville, South Carolina, to Textile Hall? And that was where that Phillips Fiber or DuPont had, were making from the residue of oil polypropylene, which the invention of 
indoor-outdoor carpeting, uh, a thing for football fields, or handy wipes and things like this, which was 12 feet wide by 500 yards or 1,000 if that's what you wanted. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that they said, I'll give you 500 yards. I put 500 yards of this traffic on my Volkswagen uh, from the airport, drove it to my studio. Two people lifted it up to a third floor, and I decided to paint the whole darn thing. Where did you show that? I cut it up. You cut it up. But I made it again. That's what I, I've done this summer. I've taken 500 yards again this time. Of polypropylene. It is polypropylene, but it's a different, more advanced version, one with silk thread. Okay. Um, it's fireproof, etc. It's better than it was what was made in 1969. We find ourselves, I think, now in the 1970s. Hmm. I'm a big admirer of the entirety of your career. I consider myself an expert. But there is a, a series of paintings that you made in 1977-78 called the Black Paintings, hmm. which I find myself wrestling with all the time in the best possible way. I adore these things. They fascinate me to no end. Tell me about the Black Paintings. What are they? Uh, how did they come about? Painting became the biggest separation of myself as a black person from other black people because I wasn't painting figures okay. at the time that blackness was very important. You're talking about black power, black civil rights, power. nationalism. You get involved in doing something that you go beyond definition. It just gets good. Right. And it becomes your personal thing. But what it was was abstract art, and black people weren't supposed to make abstract art. Right. But to prove it, you begin to concentrate on an artist who did, who happened to have been black, and that was Norman Lewis. And I bet you I had one of the first books on Norman Lewis. In fact, the person who wrote, who has just done the exhibit on Norman Lewis, borrowed my book. Ruth Fine. Yeah, and I went with her to meet Norman Lewis. And then I found out that when I was working in, in Europe, my gallery owner asked me if I'd ever been to Harlem, and I said, no. She said, well, you better go up there. You mean Harlem, Netherlands? I mean, no, Harlem, New York. New York. You've <laughs> yeah. been to Harlem. Well, I'd been there, but she meant the studio museum in Harlem. Oh, you're going back to the 60s now. Yeah. And there I met Mel Edwards and right. William T. Williams, and we became a trio. So the black paintings for our listeners... Well, I'll yeah. The point became that if I had painted myself out of the race, this was actually, someone wrote this. You had painted yourself yeah, out of the race. Yeah, I had painted myself out of the race. Right. And I said, ha, ha, ha. I did one painting called Dark As I Am. Yes. Then I said, composed. And yes. then I said, I'm going to make a black painting. I see. And But color is, I mean, color is, is I remember a friend said, Black is the color, or black is the absence of light. Black is every color. So I put it together. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, what you do is that you surprise yourself. But I made a white painting. I made yellow paintings. <laughs> mm -hmm. I made red paintings and became reductive like most minimalists had and said that I'm going to make 30 paintings that are all white, 30 that are all black. Mm -hmm. And that sort of reduction produced that. But one thing that was very interesting, 
I was watching my children, my daughters, we'd bought a shag rug for the room, and we had a shag rug rake, and I asked them to comb right. the rug, make it look nice, and things like this. And by God, I said, those kids are painting. Uh. So I bought myself rakes, I bought myself mops. You're listening to contemporary art curator Jonathan Benstock and painter Sam Gilliam in a conversation about his life and artwork. You use the word reductive to describe these series of white paintings, which were made in 76, black paintings in 77, 78. Let me just remind our listeners that, I mean, reductive in the sense that you had a color, a, mm-hmm. a single color, that a name that you used to refer to the series. But the paintings themselves are very thick. They're very complicated. The canvas substructure is cut up and reassembled. I guess that canvas underneath was soak-stained, like the earlier paintings, right? Right. And then you cut them up and reassembled, and you applied layers and layers of, did you say concrete hardener? Yeah. And paint and... Finding a way to make them physical, make them a part of, not absent from art, but actually full of art and full of concepts, so that I built things and... Got to a point that I needed assistance. I had persons to talk to. I needed architects. I needed support, so I started doing commissions, which meant that I worked in airports and LaGuardia. Universities. Yeah, train stations, universities. I traveled, taught. But one of the most important things was that from being very young, I was always fascinated by projectors or cameras or the Kodak carousel where you could put slides Mm -hmm. into a carousel, turn on a light, shine them against a wall, or put an object in space and shine them against that object. Mm -hmm. You had the formation, actually, of things just to paint. So that's what I did. I started flashing lights in the dark against things hanging Mm -hmm. and imagined them as painting. And then began to do what was called work, got shows called works or spaces. Mm-hmm. And work with other artists. I work with Antonakis, a neon artist, Robert Irwin, who <laughs> who just worked right with space, Ronnie Blayton. And for four weeks inside of a space just building, I saw other people build and make things. And then I began to concentrate more on the singularity of what one artist or two artists was doing, like Pollock, our Motherwell, or Pollock, um, Tony Smith, and Barnett Newman, until Barnett Newman, Matisse, and Barnett Newman became almost my life ambition. I mean, to, to be like Barney. I want to ask you about an especially difficult moment or period in your career. When were times really tough in a way that perhaps you didn't expect. And I say that because I suppose when you began to be an artist, when you decided to be an artist in the 50s and 60s, you probably knew that you might starve, right? So when you didn't have enough money for some basic necessities, you probably weren't surprised. Not only are you surprised, it's a process for with the family. You can go a whole year and approach Christmas and be entirely broke. The one thing you're never going to do is let a situation down, never not be a father, not be a supporter, not be without shelter, not be like my old man. Then the other thing is to learn how to back off, relax, and have faith. That'll happen. 
I don't think I've ever asked you this question. What was the worst? When I went for a year without being paid and things just got mounted up, I did a show at which I had $40,000 saved and big plans, and the dealer went south. And I took another job and worked, and I didn't get paid. And it just felt like an end. And I think I just stopped and sat for two years, then went nuts. But in that process is that I learned how to actually handle little situations. And that's when I became a collector. I start like a squirrel, scrolling away sort of objects and things like this that were part of my being an artist. I was told by an artist, Kenneth Nolan, he says, well, one way to survive is that every time you have a show, buy a work from your gallery, which is one way of ensuring that you get your money so that you have a collection of paintings. If you're an artist, you buy art. And then in the 90s, you launched into a new phase, pouring your golden acrylic paint onto wood constructions. So painted on canvas from the early days, you took the canvas off the wood stretcher, you draped it, a soft material allowed it to hang and flow in space. You went back to stretched canvases in the 70s and 80s, um, some of them very heavy and thickly painted. So how does working with paper lead to working with wood? It's about pattern. The wood is in pattern and drawing. Most of the wood you use now are like puzzles. I mean, or I started out as opposed to painting, I collaged. I'd cut out. Now is that Steve, who works with me, worked with a minimalist, George Artman, who worked with wood and cut circles and, and ornamental things. And now is that, like Malevich, or this is primitive sort of constructivist, or what they call blankness, you start where that by cutting, you make a puzzle and you pull the structure apart, you paint it and put it back together. And uh, this is like certainly the articulation of all of the sort of things that I've done. But most of all, it's much like what I did when I was six, seven years old. And it's such fun. This is Draped, a conversation with contemporary art curator, Jonathan Benstock and African-American painter, Sam Gilliam. Sam, you, you had your first show with David Kordansky. What year was that out in Los Angeles? It was three, four years three ago. Three or four years ago. An artist named Rashid Johnson, really a tremendous talent, very exciting artist, proposed an exhibition of your work to David Kordansky. Kordansky said, I love the art of Sam Gilliam. This sounds wonderful. And they showed the paintings that you made in 1965 and 66, the paintings that we did not include in your retrospective at the Corcoran. And a new period in your career was launched. We have this passionate art dealer, David Kordansky in Los Angeles, who has launched an international reappraisal of your accomplishments and contributions from Los Angeles. What's David like? How does that relationship work? David was building a new gallery. And it's very experimental. It shows ceramicists, sculptors, and suddenly said, who should I choose for my gallery? What black artist should I choose? Now here I am. I painted for a long time, but for a gallery, you have to paint something that will sometime go between the curtains. It has to go in somebody's room mm -hmm. so that you paint your survival. 
and then you paint what you want. So that over the 30 or 40 years is that I've always had, I probably at one time I had 60 to 100 paintings rolled up, unsold, that had just been made. I'd come to this point. I've educated my kids. I can do what I want to do. I'm broke. And suddenly uh, I get a call from David asking me if I want to shower, if I want to show my early paintings. I thought he was kidding. And then he said, I'm going to give you a shower. And I, he thought I was laughing. And I started to cry. What the hell? Well, you tell me that Rashid and David visited your studio. Yeah. Why did you cry? You appreciate it. Yeah. It was like that suddenly is that he's lived these two lives of painting what you wanted to paint and painting what would sell to support a family, educate a kid, do the must. But at the same time is that rolled up constantly were things that you had made that were real prizes and someone suddenly said, I want to show those. Right. Well, you weren't even answering the phone, no. is the ir irony. Um, they were calling all these other people and saying, do you know Sam Gilliam? And they happened to be calling all these people you didn't want to hear from. And I, I said, Sam, I heard that they're trying to reach you. Answer the phone. Well, I said, go to hell. <laughs> you mean, nobody wants to show those early paintings. And suddenly you realize is that here are shows you didn't have to work for. You didn't have to divide between what will fit in the gallery and what will fit in the studio. This was going to be about ideas. Mm -hmm. And suddenly someone whom you really admired, who was really way out there, very young, mm -hmm. chose you. That's like uh, getting a chance to play with Miles Davis, you know. It's very exciting. It's the way it should be. I mean, it's like you finally say, I'm 83. God, I've had a lucky life. Mm. I've also had a very good time. And I've almost can say I've done everything I wanted to do. And I'm still at it. You indeed are still at it. This is a, a high point, really. I mean, you're making some of the best art of your life right now. I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me and to share these memories of your career and your life. I think you are an inspiration for many people. Art helps us to see the world in new ways, and I think it's quite extraordinary that after more than 50 years of being an artist and at the age of 83, you continue to help us see the world in new ways. Thank you, and perhaps even more important, congratulations. And thank you. You've been listening to Draped, a conversation with African-American artist Sam Gilliam, hosted by Jonathan Benstock and presented to you by the production team here at The Urban View. Director, Quentin Hill. Executive producer, Adele Coleman. Editor and executive producer, John Robnett. Voiceover by Charles Wyman. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 